0: Church History, France and Switzerland, Lights and Shadows of the Reformation, London, G. Morrish, 20, Paternoster Square, before 1915. Republished by Irving Risch, host of Down to Earth but Heavenly Minded Podcast. Swingley, Calvin, Farrell, O. Column. In the year 1507, there was great commotion at a Bern, a canton in Switzerland. Crowds of people hastened to the convent of the Dominicans to see a young man bearing five wounds in imitation of our Lord. His arms were extended, and his head lay on one side. At times he would appear to be dying. He is suffering the cross of Christ, whispered those who stood by. It was said that he got his wounds in this way. One night as he lay in his cell the Virgin Mary appeared to him, and coming to his bedside pierced his hand with a nail, then wrapped around the wound a piece of the linen cloth worn by her son, our Lord, on his flight into Egypt. Afterwards four other wounds were made upon the body of this young man, he being chosen out for this in great grace. And thus, with that five wounds, he was visited by the crowds, anxious to see one on whom had fallen such an honour. Jetzer was the name of this young man, and after a time he had another visit from the Virgin Mary as he supposed, but in his visitor he now recognised the voice of his confessor. On expressing this to be his belief the visitor vanished. After a time she came again, and now reproached him for his unbelief. This time it is the prior, said Jetzer, rushing at him with a knife. Mary threw a pewter plate at his head and disappeared. The scales were now fallen from Jetzer's eyes. He saw how he had been deceived, and felt sure he knew who his visitors were. The Dominicans finding themselves detected tried to poison Jetzer, but he happily discovered this and fled from the place. The deception was soon noised abroad, and the Pope appointed persons to investigate the matter. Four persons were found guilty and burnt alive. Zwingli had studied at Bern, and had attracted the attention of the Dominicans, and they had invited him to lodge at their convent. His father, fearing for his safety, had bidden him leave Bern at once. The above shameful imposture shows the danger Zwingli had run. Ulrich Zwingli was born on January 1, 1484, at Wildhouse, in the canton of St. Gaul, in Switzerland. The village stands 3,613 feet above the sea, near to heaven, as one has said, and yet a part of this sin stained earth. Ulrich was first placed with his uncle, the Dean of Wessen, for his education, and being found of good ability, he was sent at ten years of age to Baal. Here he outstripped his fellow scholars, and in 1497 he was sent to Bern, where he remained till called away from the danger that threatened him, as we have seen. From Bern he went to Vienna in Austria and studied philosophy. He afterwards went to Baal where he became master of arts, and commenced teaching. His next step was to become pastor of Glarus, and in 1513 he commenced to study Greek in order, as he said, to draw from the true source the doctrine of Christ. And he afterwards said that we must endeavour to leave philosophy and theology, and enter into God's thoughts in his own word. I applied myself in earnest prayer to the Lord to give me his light, and though I read nothing but scripture. Its sense becomes clearer to me than if I had studied many commentators. This was the man chosen of God to be the most zealous of the Swiss reformers, and this was his education for the work. Zwingli twice visited Italy, and strange to say, as a soldier. In those days, all were expected to take arms when there was a call to war, and Zwingli thus was in arms to fight for the Pope. These visits, like the visit of Luther to Rome, were of great use to Zwingli. They gave him a clear insight into the evil practices of the Church of Rome, and it grieved him to the heart to see his beloved countrymen given up like cattle to the slaughter, to save that which was so corrupt. In 1516 Zwingli was called to be priest and preacher at Einsiedeln in the canton of Schwitz. It had been said that a chant of some unseen heavenly choristers had been heard in the church, and a voice which declared Christ himself had consecrated the place. This drew to the spot thousands of pilgrims, to whom Zwingli preached the gospel he told them plainly that God was not there more than anywhere else. There was no merit in their pilgrimages. Christ, who offered himself on the cross once for all, is the sacrifice and victim, which satisfies for all eternity for the sins of all believers. This was strange news to the pilgrims. They told one another, Christ alone saves us, and he saves everywhere. At this news many turned back, and the visitors became fewer. There was in consequence less money coming in, and Zwingli's stipend fell short but he cared not, he was content to be the poorer if he made others rich. Oswald Myconius, a friend of Zwingli, was appointed over the school at Zurich, and soon after his arrival, the post of preacher becoming vacant, Myconius at once proposed his friend Zwingli. After a good deal of canvassing for and against, Zwingli was chosen preacher of Zurich, which greatly enlarged his sphere of usefulness. On December 27, 1518, he entered on his duties. He began to expound the Gospel of Matthew, to the great delight of the faithful. In the next year a monk, named Samson, was going the round of Switzerland, selling indulgences. Swingley heard of his approach to Zurich, and commenced to preach against the unholy traffic. This and other influences caused the council to resolve not to admit Samson into the town. They therefore sent messengers to the suburbs where Samson had arrived. He said he had a message from the Pope. So he was admitted, but was not allowed to open his traffic. He was soon recalled from Switzerland, and a cart drawn by three horses was needed to drag the chests of money he had collected from the poor deluded Swiss. In August 1519, a dreadful plague broke out at Zurich. Zwingli was at the baths of Pfeffers, but he returned to his post at once, where he was indefatigable in his attentions to the sick. At length he was smitten down by the plague, and all hope was lost of his recovery. But day and night prayers were made by the faithful that he might be spared. God heard their prayers and raised up his servant, with renewed strength and energy to proceed with the work set before him. Besides preaching on Sundays he observed that many persons flocked to Zurich on Fridays to the market, and he resolved to open the church on the market days. And let those simple country people hear the truth and carry it away with them. By this means, and by colporteur going from village to village with the works of the reformers, the work rapidly spread in all directions and everywhere as the light increased, the power and influence of Rome decreased. This at length attracted attention and in a peculiar manner. It is one of the rules of Rome not to allow meat to be eaten on Fridays nor during Lent, and a citizen of Lucerne being at Zurich was scandalized to find a friend of his eating meat during Lent, and told him of it. His friend retorted that he knew those at Lucerne ate meat on days when it was forbidden. We purchase our license from the Pope, said the citizen of Lucerne. And we ours from the butcher, said his friend. If it be an affair of money, the one surely is as good as the other. It got noised abroad, and the council being appealed to, the practice was forbidden. But the friends of the Pope were not satisfied, and wrote to the Bishop of Constance, declaring that Zwingli was the destroyer, not the pastor of Christ's flock. The bishop appointed three persons to visit Zurich, and investigate the case. They first called a council of the clergy, but in this Zwingli delivered a speech in favor of the gospel, which his accusers did not attempt to gainsay. The magistrates were appealed to, the smaller council. Here Zwingli was not allowed to be present, and he would have been condemned, but those friendly to the truth appealed to the large council, the 200. On the 9th of April, 1522, they met, amid great interest and excitement. The Friends of the Truth demanded that the pastors should be present to hear the accusations and answer them. The smaller council objected, but it was decided that they should be heard. The deputy from the bishop said, Men have appeared amongst us teaching newly invented doctrines that are equally abominable and seditious. Continue in the church. Out of the church, none can be saved. The ceremonies of the church alone can bring unlearned Christians to the knowledge of salvation. And the pastors of the flock have nothing to do but to explain the signification of these ceremonies to the people. He and his coadjutors then wanted to leave the council, but Zwingli begged them to stay. This they refused, until the council itself strongly begged them to remain. At length they consented. Swingley rose to reply. The deputy had talked of sedition. Let him learn that Zurich is more tranquil and more obedient to the laws than any city in Switzerland, a blessing which all good Christians attribute to the gospel. It is not by vain observances that the unlearned multitude can be brought to the knowledge of the truth. There is another and a better way. It is the way that Christ and his apostles have marked out for us, even the gospel itself, with regard to abstinence. Let him who thinks forty days insufficient, fast if he will all the year round. It concerns not me. All that I contend for is that no one should be compelled to fast. In every nation, whosoever believes with all his heart in the Lord Jesus is accepted of God. Here truly is the church out of which no one can be saved. To explain the gospel and to obey it, such is the sum of our duty as the ministers of Christ. The two hundred resolved to appeal to the Pope and the cardinals to explain the controverted point, and that in the meantime abstinence from flesh should be observed during Lent. This was really a triumph for the reformers. Zwingli went on with his work. But his enemies were not baffled, and were constantly plotting to get rid of him. One day he received a letter, begging him not to eat except in his own house, and not to partake of bread except that baked at home, a plot being laid to remove him by poison. On the next day another attempt was made with the dagger, but God preserved his servant. Again the bishop interfered, and wrote to the chapter at Zurich. Though not named, all knew it was meant for Zwingli. He replied in writing. What after all is my offence? asked he, I have endeavoured to open men's eyes to the peril of their souls. I have laboured to bring them to the knowledge of the only true God and Christ Jesus his son. He was allowed to go on with his work. Other preachers were raised up. At Lucerne on a solemn fast day a large crowd filled the church, expecting to hear some noted preacher. Conrad Schmid, of Kasnacht entered the pulpit. Attention was immediately riveted, as he began to speak in German instead of the usual Latin among other strange things to their ears he said, God forbid that we should recognize a head so full of sin as the Roman bishop, and thereby reject Jesus Christ. If the bishop of Rome dispenses the bread of the gospel, let us acknowledge him as a pastor, not as our head, and if he does not dispense it, let us in no way whatever recognize him. In other places there was not room in the churches for those who preached the gospel. This was the case at Appenzell, where Walter Clara often preached in the meadows or on the mountain sides the glad tidings of salvation. The scandals that occurred through the celibacy of the clergy occasioned the reformers to search the word, and there they found that the bishop was to be the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2. Zwingli saw it was right to marry, but because some of his friends were not clear about it, he resolved to be married secretly. He was united to Anna Reinhardt, widow of Mayor von Noni. This was in 1522, some say 1524, but its being kept from the public will easily account for the different dates being named. In the meantime the enemies of the truth had appealed to the diet of the nation, and the diet had forbidden any from preaching doctrines that disturbed the people. Swingley could not consent. But in order to work in harmony with his brethren he called a meeting of the preachers favorable to the Gospel to meet him at Einsiedeln. The object was to address the heads of the cantons and the bishop on two points. One, to claim a free preaching of the Gospel. Two, to allow the clergy to marry. Happily for both they had ample scripture, which they took care to quote in their appeals. These were printed and widely circulated. These appeals stirred up the energies of the papal party. Their anger fell first upon Oswald Myconius. He was the head of the school at Lucerne. He was known to be a friend of reform, and for this, or, as they said, because he was a disciple of Luther, he was dismissed from his office. With his sick wife and child, sadly he left Lucerne. The city had refused the light and the truth, and, as if given up to its darkness, it has remained chiefly Roman Catholic to this day. Myconius found shelter at Einsiedeln. About the end of 1522 Leo Judah, a friend of Zwingli, and a staunch friend of the Gospel, came to Zurich as pastor of St. Peter's. One day Leo heard a monk in his preaching say that a man by his own strength could satisfy the righteousness of God. His spirit was stirred, and he begged the hearers to keep their seats while he proved to them the preacher was wrong. This caused great commotion, and a council was called to consider the matter. Zwingli again took the lead, first by issuing some theses, and then in the Council, by maintaining the truths of the Gospel. Faber, a German theologian, was present, but declined to hold any discussion with Zwingli. The Council decreed that as Zwingli was reproved by no one, he was at liberty to preach the Gospel. Again had God kept an open door for his truth. Rome tried other stratagems. Zwingli was surprised by a visit from the captain of the Pope's guard and a legate, bearing a letter in which the Pope called Zwingli his well-beloved son. Others, too, gathered round the reformer and offered him, honour and riches from the Church. Through God's grace, Zwingli saw the trap laid for him and evaded it. The friends of the Gospel were tried by the unwise zeal of some who, it may be hoped, had imbibed the truth. Thus, one of the vicars of St. Peter's on seeing many poor people about the doors only half-clad, said, in allusion to the costly attire of the images of saints, I should like to strip those wooden idols and clothe those poor members of Jesus Christ. A few days after, both the saints and their rich clothing were missing. The council sent the vicar to prison, though he had no hand in their removal. In October, 1523, another council was held at Zurich, an important one for the Reformation. In this the doctrine of the Mass was discussed. My brethren in Christ, said Zwingli, far from us be the thought that there is anything unreal in the body and blood of Christ. Our only aim is to prove that the Mass is not a sacrifice that can be offered to God by one man for his fellow. There was no one to reply, and the point was gained. Zurich became the stronghold of the Reformation, Myconius being called shortly afterwards to take charge of one of the schools. Thus was he again brought near to Zwingli. A general Diet of Switzerland was now held at Lucerne. The question as to which of the cantons were favourable to reform was soon raised. Zurich alone was decidedly for the Reformation, Schaffhausen almost, Bern, Baal, Solo, Glarus, and Appenzell were doubtful, the rest were decidedly against it. 19 articles were passed to the import that no new or Lutheran doctrine was to be allowed in public or private. They bore date January 26, 1524, and were ratified by all the cantons except Zurich, and copies sent to each to be carried out. The effect of this was first felt by a citizen of Zurich, Hottinger by name. Having been grieved by seeing persons fall down before a crucifix by the roadside, he had gone and dug round it till the crucifix came down with a crash. For this he was expelled from Zurich, but wherever he went he spoke freely of the gospel the reformers preached at Zurich. It is, said he, that Christ has offered himself up once only for all believers, and by that one sacrifice has purified them and redeemed them from all iniquity. And they prove by holy scripture that the mass is a mere delusion. Some took notice of his words, and at Coblenz he was seized. They tried to get a conviction against him in two places in vain, but at Lucerne, where the gospel had been driven away, they were more successful. The council at once sentenced him to be beheaded. People wept as they saw him led to execution. I am going to everlasting happiness, said he. On reaching the scaffold he raised his eyes to heaven, and said, O my Redeemer, into thy hands I commend my spirit, and his head was struck off. It being well known that Zurich was the stronghold of the Reformation, deputies were sent to the canton, requesting that they would root out the new religion. Dismissed Zwingli and his disciples, said they, then they would all unite to correct abuses. The council met to consider the proposition. All saw that it was a momentous crisis for the Reformation as far as man was concerned. But God had the hearts of all men under his control, and the council of Zurich replied that they could make no concessions in what concerned the word of God. As yet, at least in Zurich, the gospel was free. Nor did the council stop there. They had spoken courageously, they proceeded to act in like manner. The relics, collected with so much care, but about which there was so much doubt, should be worshipped no longer. They buried them. They then proceeded to strip all the churches of the images, the ornaments of which were sold for relief of the poor. The paintings were obliterated, and the walls whitewashed. Some of the ornaments were committed to the flames, to the honor and glory of God, then the organs were silenced, simplicity and sincerity of worship were sought for. While these things gave joy to the reformers, they filled the friends of the Pope with indignation and resentment. The Pope also was aroused. He addressed a brief on the subject to the Swiss Confederation. A Diet was called in July 1524 at Zug, from which a deputation was sent to Zürich, Schaffhausen and Appenzell, stating the determination not to allow the new doctrine. Zürich replied that in matters of faith the word of God must be obeyed. It was not simply the Council now. They had previously appealed to the people to know their judgment, and that judgment was emphatically for the Gospel. The reply of Zürich greatly incensed the Confederation, who threatened to sit no longer with Zürich in the Diet. Zurich, choosing the Gospel, sounds very encouraging, but it must be noticed that the people had been appealed to, and this was irrespective of whether they were Christians or not, so that the movement became partly religious and partly political. A breach was brought about unexpectedly. Oexlin was pastor of Berg, a village in the vicinity of Stein, upon the Rhine. He was a friend of Zwingli and a preacher of the Gospel. One night he was seized and carried off, but calling out, the neighbours were aroused, the alarm gun was fired, and the tocsin sounded. The whole neighbourhood were on foot. They hastened after their pastor but were unable to come up with him before he had crossed the river Thur, and was beyond their rescue. The alarm had not raised the friends of the pastor only, but those also who cared for nothing but excitement. These broke into a neighbouring convent, burnt the books, and made themselves drunk, which ended by the place being reduced to ashes. Among those who had pursued their pastor was Deputy Bailiff Worth and his two sons, all devoted to the truth, the sons being priests, and preachers of the Gospel. These had had nothing to do with the spoliation of the convent, but being known as reformers, and as they were out on that eventful night, they were singled out as those who ought to be punished. A diet of the whole of the cantons was called, and the surrender of these three men was demanded. Zurich caused them to be arrested, but on examination they were declared to be innocent. Still the diet demanded them, and on the promise that they should be examined only as to the events of that night, and not as to their faith, they were given up, and carried to Baden. It was August, 1524. At the examination the father was put to the torture, but declared himself innocent as touching the attack upon the convent. He was then charged with destroying an image of Saint Anne. Against his son Adrian there was nothing except that he had married, and had preached like Luther and Zwingli. John had given the Holy Sacrament to a sick man without candle or bell. They were also tortured, being urged to confess of whom they had learnt the evil doctrine. The bailiff's wife repaired to Barden, and with a babe in her arms, appealed to the judges. Her younger son was given up to her, but her husband and John were condemned to death, together with another bailiff, named Ruterman. Sustained by faith in the Lord, they were beheaded. The Gospel was bearing fruit to the glory of God. This caused deep emotion in Zurich, but so far from hindering the Reformation, it instilled new courage and helped on the work. On August 11, 1525, the pastors of Zurich applied to the Great Council to abolish the Mass, and re-establish the Lord's Supper. This they agreed to, the altars were removed, and tables supplied their places the people were given both the bread and the wine. As these things were being done at Zurich, at Bern the Gospel was also progressing, but amid great opposition. James Wattville, president over the Council, and his son Nicholas, provost in the Church, were both favourable to the Gospel. The Council ordained that the preaching should consist of the Gospel, and the doctrine of God as it is found in the books of Scripture, and that the preachers should not allude to any doctrine, disputation, or writing coming from Luther or other teachers. This was skillfully warded. While it appeased the Romish party that the doctrines of Luther were not to be preached, it left the reformers free to preach the same truths drawn from Scripture. At Königsfeld, there stood a monastery where all the noble families of Switzerland and Suabia sent the daughters who desired to take the veil. In this convent was the sister of the provost, Margaret Watville, who had read the Scriptures and received the truth, along with others of the inmates. These were convinced that the proper place was in their families, and they made a request to the council that they might leave the convent. The council used its influence to cause them to remain. The discipline was relaxed, and their allowances increased, but this did not satisfy them. We desire, said they, not liberty of the flesh, but that of the spirit. We your poor unoffending prisoners, beseech you to take compassion on us. Our prisoners, exclaimed the Banneret, a staunch defender of the convents, I have no wish to detain them prisoners. This turned the council in their favour. The doors were thrown open, and all who wished left. Nicholas Watville, to keep a good conscience, gave up all hopes of promotion and emoluments, and married a nun, Clara May, from another convent. Thus were the strongholds of Rome being broken into in the canton of Bern. At Baal, too, the Reformation made progress. It was the learned city of Switzerland, and the residence of Erasmus, who, while he spoke plainly and loudly against the abuses of the Church, always drew back when any wished him to advance. He thus became really a hindrance to the Reformation and eventually wrote against Luther. But Oecolampadius was a faithful advocate of the Reformation. He had suffered persecution, and was now a tried man. He was professor and preacher at Baal. Zwingli was led, in studying the scriptures, to the belief that the bread and the wine were not changed into the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper, neither did he believe with Luther. That though the bread and the wine were not changed, yet they were accompanied by the real body and blood, but he believed that the bread and wine were symbols of the body and blood of Christ. The one represented the other. This is now the view held by most Protestants, but at that time it was a newly recovered truth, that had been hidden for ages. Oecolampadius agreed with Zwingli. Though Luther and Zwingli did not agree on this point, Zwingli and the other Swiss divines were anxious that this difference should not separate them from the German reformers. But Luther was very violent about it, and declared to the messenger whom the Swiss sent, either the one party or the other. Either the Swiss or we must be ministers of Satan. Thus was the bark of the Reformation weakened from within by its divisions, where unity would have been strength. It was assailed, too, from without by the philosophy of Erasmus and the schools, by the fanaticism of the Anabaptists, who, driven from Germany, spread in Switzerland, and by the religion of the Church of Rome. If it had not been floated by God Himself, it must have founded, but God was above all, and the frail bark weathered every storm. A general diet was called for, May 16, 1526, at Baden, to consider the subject of the new doctrines. Doctor Eck was invited as the champion for Rome. The way Barden had behaved in the matter of the bailiff's worth and Ruteman and the threats thrown out against Zwingli, rendered it unsafe for him to attend. Oecolampadius had to be the champion of the Reformation. Naturally quiet and retiring, he would have wished for Zwingli, but he felt constrained to be present and speak for the word of God. Nothing could be more marked than the attitude of Baden. The friends of the papacy, especially Eck and Faber, fared sumptuously and were well received everywhere, while Oacolumpadius and his compeers were as a set of beggars, and were scoffed at as freely as the others were commended. The landlord of the pike, the inn where Oacolumpadius lodge, being curious to know how the reformer spent his time, often looked in upon him, but always found him reading or praying. It must be confessed, said he, that he is a very pious heretic. The discussion lasted eighteen days. Eck was loud, boastful and confident. Oacolampadius was serene, mild, but weighty. Of him a friend of Rome was heard to say, oh that the tall sallow man were on our side. No one was allowed to take notes except those appointed by the papal party. But a student, named Jerome Walsh, had an excellent memory. After each discussion, he hastened home and wrote down all he could remember, and a messenger was dispatched with it to Zwingli, who sent advice in return. The discussion over, the theses of Eck were signed by eighty persons, while the protest against them was signed only by Ocolumpadius and ten others. The Diet now decreed that as Zwingli, the leader in the pernicious doctrines, had refused to appear, and as the ministers who had come to Baden had hardened themselves against conviction. Both the one and the others were in consequence cast out of the bosom of the Church. A strange thing this surely, that a diet of counsellors, with no pretension whatever to have any standing in the Church should take upon themselves to excommunicate a body of Christians. It may have satisfied themselves, but certainly in God's sight it went no further than presumptuous words. Oacolampadius was received back to Baal with great joy. He had done his duty, and God had protected him. Paula, on his return to Bern, was ordered to perform Mass by the smaller council. He appealed to the larger council, and there he solemnly told them that he could not with a clear conscience perform the Mass. He would leave the city if they wished it. They decided, to try and appease Rome, to remove him from being canon, and appoint him preacher. In other places the work spread. The discussion at Baden, instead of crushing the Reformation, as it was hoped it would do, only gave to it fresh life and vigour. In 1527, Zurich being excluded from the national diet, by the Catholic cantons, called a diet in its own city, and invited those supposed to be favourable to the Gospel. Deputies from Bern, Baal, Schaffhausen, Appenzell, and St. Gaul attended. A proposition was made in favour of the preaching of God's word and not the opinions of any man, and independent of any custom of their forefathers, who had not the word as they now had. The deputies promised to report the proposition. The Catholic cantons were much disconcerted that Bern should be holding with Zurich, and they called together a council of deputies in Bern itself, and then demanded of that city that it should turn away the preachers of the Gospel, and return to the true faith. Bern refused, but soon found, to its dismay, that the Catholic cantons were seeking foreign aid. The report was raised that Ferdinand, brother to Charles V, was about to enter Switzerland with an army to attack Zurich and those who held with that city. About this same date, 1527, there was in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, at Aigle, a schoolmaster known as Ursinus. He was a Frenchman, and had lately come into Switzerland, and sought employment to teach the youth. When his labours were over in the school he would be busy with the Greek and Hebrew scriptures. He next, as opportunity offered, instructed the parents as well as the children. He attacked Purgatory, the Pope, and the priests, and by degrees he had quite a band of listeners. But one day, to their astonishment, he threw off his disguise and said, I am William Farrell, minister of the word of God. The magistrates and the priests were alarmed to find such a man among them. But we must digress, and tell you who William Farrell was, and what he had done to excite alarm in the minds of the magistrates. In doing this we shall get a glance at the commencement of the reformation in France.